we can turn then please to Matthew chapter 5 and we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 5 verses 1 to 12. We notice in the first verse it says, In seeing the multitudes, Jesus went up into a mountain. And you'll notice in Matthew's Gospel, if you read it carefully, that there are several key events in the ministry of Jesus which take place on mountains. He was tempted by Satan on an exceedingly high mountain. He prayed on the tops of mountains. It was on the top of a mountain that the great multitudes we read of the lame, the blind, the dumb, the maimed, um, and so on, were cast down at Jesus' feet and he healed them. It was on a mountain that he took Peter, James and John and was transfigured, transformed before them. The Greek word for transfigured there is the English word is transliterated into the English, the metamorphosis, where the lava becomes a butterfly. Jesus was transfigured. He emerged in a wonderful way, showing his glory, a great change in his appearance. And before his agony in the garden and on the cross, it was on to the Mount of Olives that he and his disciples went after singing a hymn. And Jesus and the eleven disciples went away to Galilee and into a mountain where Jesus gave them the great commission to go into all the world and preach the gospel. So mountains were a very important theme in Matthew, or an important theme in Matthew make an interesting study for someone to do. The prophets, of course, emphasise the importance of mountains in the Old Testament, in the latter days. The period between Christ's first coming and his second coming is known in Scripture in the Old Testament as the latter days, or in the New Testament as the last days, the days that we are living. And Isaiah emphasised how important mountains would be in these latter days. It said in Isaiah chapter 2 verse 2, And it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow into it. It was on Mount Sinai, the reading we had in the Old Testament, that God shaped and fashioned his people Israel through the law. And the Lord Jesus, like Moses, but much better than Moses, ascends the mountain here in Matthew chapter 5 and <clears throat> fulfills the law of the Old Testament, the law of Moses, and he shapes his kingdom people through his law. The same law, but fulfilled in Christ. Israel in the Old Testament was marked by failure. Failure to keep the law, failure to keep the 
covenant, but the true Israel of the latter days, the king, the people of Christ's kingdom, will live as citizens of the true church, the true Israel, inaugurated in Christ, and will be consummated one day when the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem, will come down out of heaven. And so we must read these Beatitudes in the context of the epoch, or the, there was the epoch in which they are set. It is this the new age. Jesus has ushered in the new age. And the force of the new covenant principle is in play. And what is that? It is that law keeping, the keeping of the law, is no longer an external thing, but it is now an internal matter. Jeremiah prophesied that, the, <clears throat> that this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. So the law is now internalised, written on a Christian's heart. And so that is why this is a better covenant. And what we have in our text today is exactly really the same pattern as we have in the epistles, in Paul's epistles and others, where, first of all, it is set out what is true of the Christian in reality, in fact, and then having established what is true of the Christian, then the implications for behaviour and obedience are worked out afterwards. If you read it, virtually every epistle, that's how they're structured. Doctrine first and then practice. And what Jesus is saying in these Beatitudes should not be read as some kind of ethical demand or some manifesto that we need to implement in the world. What these Beatitudes are saying is what is true of every person who comes into his kingdom. He is describing, in other words, the spiritual riches of the people of God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. And we are reading here in the Beatitudes of the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. And that's why in every one the Lord Jesus begins with the word blessed. Blessed really closest approximation in modern parlance is to say really happy, really happy are, the, are those who have these things true of them. And so before we come to these Beatitudes, I want us to understand that if we're a Christian, these blessings are objectively true of us. They're not something we're striving for or seeking to achieve. They're already true of us. And we are meant to live in the light of them. The way we live and behave is supposed to match the position that we have in Christ. And that's always the way that we should be thinking of our Christian walk. We live in a particular way because it's consistent 
with and is demanded by our position in Christ. If you try and live the Christian life any other way, you'll have a nervous breakdown. Though I'm not joking. Because we live a Christian life, not in our own energy or in our own strivings. We live in the good of what we really are in Christ and what Christ has achieved for us. And in these Beatitudes, Jesus is describing the kind of radical new creatures that he is forming in his church. The true Israel, the radical Israel, formed in his likeness and in his image, living a completely new and different life than the people of the world. It's a description of a Christian, a Christian spirit-filled life. That's what I want us to understand, first of all. It's only true, these Beatitudes can only be true of someone who knows Christ. It's not something that an unbeliever or someone in the world can copy or enact. In fact, they're so countercultural anyway, most people would hate to have these blessings. I mean, who wants to be poor in spirit, for example? But for the Christian, these things are a great blessing. So as we quickly comment on these Beatitudes, and I'll have to be quick, we need to bear in mind that we behave the way that we behave. We live the way that we live as Christians because of what we are. Not because of anything we've achieved, but because of what we are through the work of Christ in our lives. And so as we consider these Beatitudes, we have the description of what all Christians should be like. And by implication, we have the very opposite view of what those who do not know Christ are like. We also, thirdly, I suppose, should add, we have what Christians who are not walking properly with the Lord can be like. This is what the Lord Jesus Christ sees as the way a Christian should be. Totally different people, new people in Christ's kingdom, different than the people outside of the kingdom of Christ. The trouble today is that people are finding it very difficult to tell the difference between people in the church and people outside of the church. And so let us use this morning to at least see the picture of what we're meant to be. People with different desires, different priorities, different appetites, different loves than the world. And so let us launch in. The Lord Jesus said, first of all, in verse 3 of chapter 5, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We need to remember that these beatitudes have a natural flow one to the next. 
and certainly in the earlier ones, it's quite easy to see the connection. And the Lord Jesus begins with this issue of poverty of spirit, because it's the entry point into the kingdom of heaven. Christ's people, to be a Christian, means you have to be poor in your spirit. That is to say, you mustn't be full of yourself. A Christian has a particular attitude towards himself, which is to say that I am completely in myself unable to please God. I'm empty of self-reliance and self-confidence and self-expression. All the things of the world, particularly at the moment, are emphasising as the most important things for the Christian would bar them, really, from any relationship with God. The entry into Christ's kingdom is through justification by faith, which means relying on the merit of Christ to be saved, rather than relying on our merit, our good behaviour, works of charity, or nice character. And so to be justified by faith, we have to be poor in spirit, to realise that nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. And Jesus says, a man or a woman who has poverty of spirit is blessed and truly happy. Because he understands that he has nothing in the presence of God in his, in his own flesh. He can't say to God, I am this or I am that. I come as a sinner to Jesus. Vile and full of sin I am, the hymn says. There's a brokenness before God which comes through a conviction of sin, a realisation that we are a sinner in the sight of God. It's human pride, self-reliance, an insistence on having my voice, my self-identity, that will send people to hell in the end. Because God always opposes the proud. You remember the parable of the two men who went into the temple to pray, the Pharisee, the religious man, and the tax collector, one of the most unpopular members of society. And the Pharisee, he wasn't poor in spirit, was he? He was full of what? He was full of himself. He stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men, and I'm not like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give all I I give tithes of all I possess. Look at me, look at my goodness, Lord. Look at my merit. Look at my strength. In contrast to tax collector, stood afar off from the temple and covered his, his eyes with his hand would not lift up his eyes unto heaven, but smote his breath, breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's the way to become a Christian, dear friends. And the Lord Jesus Christ starts with that. There has to be that cry within the human heart, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And that's a prayer that anyone can make. You can make today, if you're full of pride, if, 
if you haven't realised that you need to be poor in your spirit, then you can come to God and say, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner, because I have nothing in my hand to bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Psalm 34 verse 18 says, The Lord is near or nigh unto them that are of a broken heart and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. And then the Lord Jesus says, Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Well, we don't really associate being really happy with mourning. You don't go to a funeral and start laughing and, and being happy, do you? But in the spirit, but there's a spiritual mourning which Christ says makes a man, a Christian, truly blessed. True poverty of spirit leads to true contrition and repentance of sin. In Luke's account of the Beatitudes, he says, Woe unto you that laugh now, for ye shall mourn and weep. Jesus is not talking about the type of mourning you see at a funeral. He's referring to spiritual mourning. That the Christian is given as a gift from God over his own sins. This Christian mourning comes from a true understanding of sin. We have a, a, an example of it in King David who sinned terribly against God. And he repented and he says, Against thee, thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. He's mourning, you see. To mourn is something that follows from being poor in spirit. I mourn because of what I have done to God. I've offended God in the first place. I've offended others. I've damaged others through my sin. But initially, the greatest offence is that I've sinned against God. And the Christian mourns about this sin in his life. This war of sin within his members which continues even after he becomes a Christian in his body. The Christian is never neutral about sin. Never comfortable with it. Not comfortable with it in himself or in others. And the world can laugh and joke. does, doesn't it, all the time. If somebody does something wrong, laugh it off. The world can laugh and joke, but the true Christian can't. And I wonder if that's true of you this morning, dear friend, whether you're a Christian or not. Does sin offend you? Does it, does, does it bring out this mourning within you when you see it in yourself? The Christian is one who will be comforted, the Lord Jesus says. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Why will they be comforted? Because the man who truly mourns spiritually will repent, and he will find Christ, and he will know full and free forgiveness of sin. The Apostle Paul in Romans 7, 
There's great difference of opinion on how to interpret Romans 7, but I take the view that he's talking now as before he was a Christian. And in Romans 7 he says, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me? But in Romans 8, Paul goes on to say, as a Christian, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, he's comforted. This morning and comforting in the first place comes when you become a Christian initially because you're convicted of your sin and it's like a burden on your back you can hardly carry. And you're mourning over what you've done to yourself and to others and and the offence you've given to God and Christ comforts with his free and full forgiveness. Who is a pardon of God? Likely. Who has grace so rich and free? And then, as Christians, when we sin, when we fall, we mourn, we repent, and uh, it's appointed, it is said in Isaiah to them, that's to Christians, that mourning Zion, that's the church, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. Blessed is the man who mourns, because a Christian, even if he falls, can find comfort in true repentance and forgiveness. For a just man, the proverb says, falleth seven times and riseth up again. And so there's great comfort in his beatitude for the Christian backsliding. Someone who has fallen maybe seven times, the perfect number, which means probably a lot more than seven times for most of us. But we rise up again because blessed are they that mourn for they shall be comforted. Verse 5 says, blessed, the Lord Jesus says, blessed are the meek. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. So to know your poverty, to mourn and turn from sin, to know the comfort of free forgiveness leads naturally on, doesn't it, to meekness. A great desire. What does meekness mean? Meekness means a desire to accept and obey the will of God. A meek person accepts the fact that he will submit to the will of another. Not out of slavish fear, but out of a principle of love. To be meek means willing to be taught, willing to obey, not insisting on our own rights. The only time Jesus ever really described himself as a character, if you like, was when he said in Matthew eleven twenty nine, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. That's interesting, isn't it? He picks out the one big aspect of his character as meekness. And that's so evident, his willingness to submit to the will of his Father. 
He says, I have been, come to me and take my yoke upon you, because I have been yoked to the will of my Father, and I have learned obedience. I have learned what it is to be meek and to submit. Learn of me, because I have already learned that lesson as the perfect Saviour of the world. The Christian has a quiet, submissive spirit. Like the Lord Jesus Christ doesn't retaliate. We follow in his steps. He did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. When the Lord Jesus was reviled, he reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not. What did he do? He committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. The very opposite of the Roman way, of course. They gloried in strength. The Christian, this new creature, is blessed because he is meek. And the promise is that we will inherit the earth. The meek will inherit the earth. What does that mean? Well, I think it means this that you can't beat a man like that. You can't beat down a meek, a truly meek Christian. Because he's already satisfied with everything. Like Paul says, as having nothing, yet possessing all things. When you know how to be both abased and you know also how to abound, you've inherited the earth. Nothing can touch you. All things are yours, Paul says, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours and your Christ's and Christ's is God's. Jesus then goes on to say, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are they which hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. This is another important description of the Christian, dear friends. It follows from what has gone before, because to have true knowledge of our poverty, to mourn and repent, and to be submissive to God's will, creates in us a great spiritual hunger and appetite. It leads us to great spiritual desires, yearnings after God, Yearnings after holiness, which are likened to physical hunger and physical thirst. To be hungry and thirsty is a primal instinct. But for the Christian, the desire for righteousness is just as strong as desire for food and water. We can't live on bread alone, but we have to live by every word proceed from the mouth of God and we long for the living bread we long for the living water because we're given new desires like a newborn baby we crave the sincere milk of the world the Christian desires righteousness and that means to be free from sin in all its forms and to be positively holy not only righteous with God in a legal sense through justification by faith, but it is a desire to be free from the power and the pollution of sin. 
The Christian looks for the fruit of the Holy Spirit in his own life. And when it's there, when, we, when it's evident, we get really excited because, not because of anything we've done, but because we see evidence of the fruit, not of ourselves, but of the Holy Spirit living within us. And the promise is that we shall be filled. All the fitness he requireth of him says is to see your need of him. The Holy Spirit comes into the Christian and works in him both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And the more you're filled with righteousness, the more you want. It's, um, it increases your appetite. And dear friends, if you're not a Christian this morning, you won't know, you won't know what, I'm, even what I'm talking about. But, to know to, but the desire for righteousness is the desire to be like the Lord Jesus Christ. To be holy and to be made into his image. Jesus then goes on to say, Blessed are the merciful, for they will obtain mercy. This again is another development and progression because the true Christian, the true kingdom person, if you like, is not only concerned with their own need, their own sin, and their own holiness, they're concerned with the impact all of that has upon their outward behaviours and ministry to other people. It has a, this salvation has a radical impact upon our disposition and behaviour, not only towards God and to ourselves, but towards others. It's not theoretical, it's real. The Christian is merciful. He forgives because he has been forgiven much. It's all very well talking about these things, but the reality is when it actually happens. When someone is when someone does us harm, the Christian is called upon to forgive and to be exceptionally generous about mercy. Because of all the mercy that we have received. And we have to treat others with the level of generosity, or at least try, it would be impossible to match it, but to, at least to try and emulate the mercy that we have received from God when others need forgiveness from us. And the reward is that we will obtain mercy. The Christian will receive mercy from God. Already really has received mercy from God and lives in the light of that mercy and gives it to others. Blessed then, Jesus then goes on to say, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, this is what Christianity is all about, isn't it, dear friend? Blessed are the pure in heart. The gospel is concerned mainly about the heart. The Christian faith is, is far more than a doctrine. It's mainly about having a new heart. Being a Christian is far more than being a student of the Bible. 
is far more than being a Calvinist or calling yourself reformed. I'm not sure God's very impressed with any of that. It's not about theory or mechanics. It's about a new heart. And the the heart is the seat of your affections, your emotions, your will, your understanding, your soul. The real you, the centre of you. And you need to be born again, Jesus says. You need to be a new creation and have a new heart, a pure heart. Because our hearts by nature are full of wickedness and sin. They're rotten to the core. And yet the Christian is called blessed because he has been given what? A new, pure heart. A cleansed heart. And the Christian guards that heart. He should do at least. He puts on the armour of God, particularly the helmet of salvation. The Christian looks straight ahead. He closes his ear when he needs to close his ear. He's single-eyed and single-minded. He's careful what he looks at. He's careful what he listens to because he wants to guard the purity of his heart. And the promise is that he will see God. A person like that will see God. Because the Holy Spirit is not grieved in a man like that. There is no drawing back from God into the shadows of the trees whilst hearing God say, what is this that thou hast done? Our consciences are clear. And we walk in the light as he is in the light. And some Christians, dear friends, are like um, like a dirty oven. That job may be forever postponed because it's hard to clean an oven, isn't it? hard work to create an oven and it begins to stink when we start to use it. And the some Christians, they're like a, dev- a dirty oven, it's time that they had a deep clean and had that pure heart restored because we are being given a pure heart. Blessed are the pure in heart. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, the psalm says, or who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart. And then Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Jesus establishes an entirely new kingdom with an entirely new type of person. And only new men and women, boys and girls in Christ, can live like this. We can't just implement this in some kind of political way. The only peacemakers of the type Jesus means are true Christians living as we are meant to live. And the Christian is one who desires peace. But not only desires peace, just has that tendency to create peace wherever he goes. He helps maintain peace. He's prepared to suffer wrong and injustice in order to bring peace. We feed our enemies. We turn the other cheek. We seek to do good to those who do us wrong. And in the church, in the context of the church, we deal with disagreements like Paul did with Euodia and Syntyche in Philippians. 
and we entreat them to agree in the Lord. He didn't take sides. He didn't say, well, I think, you know, Euodia's got a point there, syndicate. He, he, he gave no comment that he was right or he was wrong. He entreats them to agree in the Lord. You see, the Christian doesn't gossip. He covers over a multitude of sins. If you can, some sins you can't. If they're really offensive. But where you can, you cover over you think the best, you promote the best, you encourage the best. And the promise is that peacemakers shall be called the children of God. Why? Because they're acting like their father. The father who created peace through giving his son to bring peace to the world. And then finally, we come to Verses 10 and 11. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. The Christian is persecuted for righteousness' sake. Let us not be persecuted for other reasons, for being a pain, or just being strange, or, or just being annoying. We have to be persecuted for righteousness' sake, for being a particular type of person, for being a kingdom person, for being a person like this. And all over the world, world Christians are facing fiery trials. They're being persecuted for being like the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. The servant is not above his master. You know, the reaction of a, of a, of a great deal of people toward Jesus was what? Was to pick up a stone and throw it at him. That's the effect Jesus had on many people. And Jesus said, Woe unto you when all men speak well of you. The Christian is not in some kind of popularity contest. In fact, if we're popular with everyone, there's probably something wrong. He says unto you, unto you, Paul, the apostle said to the Philippians, It is given in the behalf of Christ. Not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. So that then, very quickly, far too quickly really, to give him justice, is the picture that the Lord Jesus Christ gives of the true Israelite, the true Christian. Those who are part of the new humanity which Jesus heads. And will one day come back to consummate the final age. This is the picture the Lord Jesus Christ gives of a spirit-filled life. Forget all the conferences and all the dancing around and, and the singing the choruses for half an hour. The true spirit-filled life is this. We need to live more in alignment with what is true of us in Christ. He has made us these things. 
And we are truly blessed. And you and I should be sticking out like sore thumbs in the world, not melting in, that's the right word, um, blending in, I'm trying to say. We should be sticking out because we're radically different. We are new creatures in a new age, living in the midst of an old and dying world that will perish. And our job, as we've done this morning, I hope, is to call people into the kingdom of God through the gospel. Because Jesus came, why? To preach the gospel to the poor. To give healing to the broken, the brokenhearted. He came to give deliverance to captives and recovery of sight to the blind. And that is what is offered by the Lord Jesus Christ to all of you today. And if you don't know him, if you're not part of this kingdom, the Lord Jesus Christ has come to include you, but you have to be poor in your spirit. You have to come through that narrow way of salvation. Not relying on anything in you. And saying, Lord Jesus Christ, save me, I'm a sinner. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I come. And may God bless his word to us this morning.